Hey, it's Dallas, and I have a question for you. Well, actually, I have two questions for you. Well, it's kind of the same question, but asked in two different ways. So for the first part of the question, let's imagine that you're an employee of a business that's located in a small community that's been hit really hard by a recession, and the community is experiencing substantial unemployment. Thankfully, this unemployment hasn't impacted you yet. And fortunately, the community hasn't had to deal with any inflation issues, meaning the cost of living has remained the same year over year. However, the company decides that in the upcoming year, due to the uncertainty of the recession, they need to reduce all employee salaries by 7% in order to keep the doors open and keep people employed. Do you think this is a fair approach or do you think this is unfair? Take a second and consider it. Okay, I'm willing to go out on a limb here and assume you felt like this was unfair. But before we go deeper on this, let me reframe that question and ask it in another way. For the second question, let's say you're working for that very same business in the very same community that's been hit hard by that same recession. Uh The community is still experiencing substantial unemployment and Uh you still have your job. Absolutely. But this time, annual inflation is out of control. It's at 12%. Uh So this means that next year it's going to cost you 12% more just to live than it did last year. With this set of economic challenges, the company has decided that in the upcoming year, they can only give their employees a 5% raise. So how do you feel about this? Is that fair or unfair? Like I say in every episode, I can't read your mind, so I don't actually know how you feel. But I do know what the research says. And the research says that in the first scenario, a large majority of employees felt the 7% reduction in salary was unfair. In fact, nearly 7 out of 10 people felt it was unfair. But in the second scenario, 8 out of 10 people found the 5% increase in salary to be totally fine, despite the 12% inflation leaving them in the same exact financial scenario. And if that math is hard to follow, in the first scenario, you lost 7% salary straight up. But in the second scenario, once you adjust for the annual increase in the cost of living, which was 12%, and you're only getting a 5% annual raise, you still find yourself 7% down on last year's salary. Okay, so that's a lot more math than I usually ask you to do, so I apologize for that. But there's something really interesting going on here, and I promise it will make sense by the time we're done with this episode. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll dive in. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and you're listening to Unconsidered, the podcast where we get inside the mind of the modern entrepreneur, business owner, and marketer. For lack of a better word, is good. If you don't know which door to open, always account for variable change. There is a zero percent chance. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education, could have got for a dollar fifty in late charge. Tell me something I don't already know. Come on, we just made the deal of our lifetime. We should celebrate. We're in a completely fraudulent system. The question I opened this episode with is a variation of a 1991 research study by Daniel Kahneman, Jack Netsch, and Richard Thaler. So a small sidebar here. You might remember the Nobel Prize winning Richard Thaler from our episode 6 Beer on a Beach question. Or if you're listening to this podcast from newest to oldest, you'll get there soon. Now, Daniel Kahneman is another Nobel Prize winning economist and author of the legendary book, Thinking Fast and Slow. 
And then Jack Netch is often considered the single most cited behavioral economist in the world. So I don't typically dive into the bios of the researchers, and instead I just focus on the research. But when these three show up leading the very same study, it's worth investing the time to read and understand the entire research paper. So I recommend you do that. But anyway, back to the question. In our first question, employees felt the 7% reduction of wage was unfair. But in the second scenario, which was framed as a 5% increase in wages, the majority found it to be fair. So what's going on here? What we're talking about here is the endowment effect. The endowment effect is the phrase coined by Kahneman, Netsch, and Thaler in their paper titled Anomalies, the Endowment Effect, Loss Aversion, and Status Quo Bias. But before we really dive into discussing what the endowment effect is, I want to talk through a few more examples, because I think later it will be a little bit easier to grasp what's going on when we have a few more real-world examples to lean on. For example, one study of the endowment effect demonstrated that if you give a group of people a ticket to a sporting event, completely for free, and then you ask a second group of people, people without a ticket, what they'd be willing to pay to purchase a ticket to that very same event, the group who was given the ticket values that ticket at a much higher price than what the second group says they're willing to pay for it. The buyers and sellers weren't even close to landing on a fair price. The people who had a ticket overcharged for it. The people who didn't have a ticket didn't want to pay that price for it. Another famous endowment effect study had respondents purchase small items from a live auction. Just cheap things like coffee mugs, pens, articles of clothing, and so on. Nothing of any real value. And then the people who won the auctions, the buyers, were asked if they wanted to keep the item they just purchased or if they wanted to resell it. The ones who chose to resell the item now demanded a higher price than what they had just paid for it. And remember, the point of an auction is to find the fair price. It's called the settling price. Now, for some reason, these buyers thought the item was now worth more just through them possessing it. Studies on the endowment effect also show its impact on real estate. For example, homeowners demonstrate an inflated perception of a home's value if they've personally lived in it. Even when they're selling a portfolio of homes, they're more likely to appropriately price a home they didn't live in compared to the ones they did live in. The sellers are ascribing a higher price to the homes they lived in purely due to emotional purposes. And frankly, buyers don't care. So like the real estate example, it's important to double down on pointing out that the endowment effect can manifest itself in nearly every aspect of our lives. It's not just limited to physical objects. The endowment effect is influencing our decision-making and leading us to make biased valuations almost every day based on very simple things like physical possession and emotional attachment. And because it touches nearly every aspect of our lives, it's important that we're able to recognize it and acknowledge it and understand it so that we can make more unbiased, rational, and informed choices on a day-to-day basis. So for this episode, I'm unraveling the effect a little bit out of order, but on purpose. I opened this episode with our initial question like usual, and then I jumped straight into giving you a whole bunch of examples of the endowment effect in action. So now I want to circle back and talk more about what the effect actually is and what's going on. So maybe you figured it out already, but the endowment effect is a psychological phenomenon that describes the tendency of individuals to ascribe more value to something simply because they own or possess it. In other words, people tend to place a higher value on objects, goods, or even ideas once those become their property, 
compared to the value they would place on the same item if they didn't own it. And like we've discussed earlier, this phenomenon has been observed in various studies and has significant implications in our decision-making, particularly in the realm of economics, or financial decision-making. Remember the example with the ticket to the sports event? Even though the first group was given the ticket for free, the value they then ascribed to it was greater than what the market, the second group that didn't have a ticket, was willing to pay, simply because it was in their possession, not because it actually held that value. Remember, they got it for free, so if they chose to sell it for the asking price, it's only profit for them. This is an example of how the endowment effect can cause us to treat opportunity costs differently than an out-of-pocket cost. These ticket holders are trying to maximize their opportunity, but if the shoe were on the other foot, or the ticket in the other hand, that same person wouldn't pay out-of-pocket what they were asking for. This approach to a negotiation, where the person in possession unnecessarily overvalues their possession, more often than not results in a lost opportunity for the seller, because the willingness to accept is far greater than the willingness to pay. Hopefully you'll get a deal because you need help. I'm out. Where this is an example of the endowment effect impacting opportunity costs, it can also impact our acceptance of unfavorable circumstances. Think back to the opening of this episode. Nearly 80% of employees had no issue when their employer gave them a 5% raise, even when it still put them 7% behind inflation. This is an unfavorable circumstance, but this framing worked because it's framed as a gain and not a loss. Employees felt like they were still gaining 5%, when in reality, they were losing 7%. But here's why. The first scenario, a 7% decrease in salary, It's taking money away from a salary number they already felt they possessed. You know, that little number on their paycheck that they're so used to is now about to be 7% smaller. That's very unfair. This is because it's often less painful for people, to us, our clients, our customers, to forego unknown, unrealized future gains than it is to experience very real, very right now losses. You'll notice this in the real world. There's businesses who charge cash customers one price and credit card customers a higher price. The business will always refer to the cash price as a discount rather than to the credit card price as a surcharge. For example, saying save money when you pay by cash is far more acceptable and far more fair to the consumer than saying, hey, all credit card transactions will be 3% more, even though, again, it's the exact same thing. It's the psychology behind why the majority of Amazon Prime Day deals are actually just marked up, then the marked up price is slashed out, and then the Amazon Prime Day deal price ends up exactly the same as it was the day before. But it works. We as consumers, we still jump at buying it because it feels better to us. We trick ourselves into thinking we're getting a deal. We feel like we're actually somehow gaining back whatever the fake deal price delta was. And if you go beyond physical objects or finances or possessions, the endowment effect can lead us into situations where we're unwilling to change something we're already doing or, for example, a service we're offering, even when it's objectively smarter to make a change. This is called the status quo bias. And you can kind of think about this as a subcategory that lives right underneath the endowment effect umbrella. It's kind of a nuance within endowment effect. Now, status quo bias refers to the tendency of individuals to prefer the current state of affairs, or the status quo, over any potential changes, even when objectively better alternatives are available. 
For example, over time, employees start to develop an emotional attachment to their current job or their colleagues and their workplace. And they want to maintain this status quo. They want to keep things how they are. As a result, they might be hesitant to leave even when better career opportunities are readily available. So that's a quick example of status quo bias. But there's one more piece of this puzzle. This is known as loss aversion. So now think about this as another little subcategory of the endowment effect. Loss aversion is the cognitive bias that describes the tendency of individuals to feel the pain of losses more strongly than the pleasure of equivalent gains. In other words, the negative emotions associated with losing something outweigh the positive emotions associated with gaining something of the same value. Loss aversion is a significant factor within the endowment effect, as people are often more concerned about avoiding losses than they are about maximizing gains. For example, an investor may be unwilling to sell a stock that's already declined significantly in value, hoping that it will recover, even if there are more promising investment opportunities available. They fear the regret and pain of realizing the loss more strongly than they'd feel the joy and success of selling that stock, investing in a new one, and eventually accruing an overall profit. You can separate status quo bias and loss aversion into their own little buckets by thinking about it like this. Status quo bias is the preference for maintaining the current state, regardless of its objective merits, due to the comfort and familiarity with the existing situation. Loss aversion is the tendency to fear losses more than seeking gains, which often leads to conservative decision-making to avoid potential losses. But both are variations of the endowment effect, which is when we ascribe more value to something simply because we own it or possess it. So now that we understand these three principles, and we have a lot of hypothetical real-world examples to draw analogies to, let's talk more about what we can do about this on a day-to-day basis. Most business owners and most leaders, most successful entrepreneurs, most of the people listening to this episode, myself included, we tend to think of ourselves as strong decision makers. We're analytical. We tell ourselves that we operate on facts and on upside and on future opportunities. We tell ourselves that we're not emotionally tied to the decisions we're making and that we're agile and adaptable to the environment. You know, all of this stuff that we fill our heads with that comes from these leadership books and business groups, you know, and a lot of this is probably true. But what's tricky about most of what this podcast covers, and especially this episode's topic of the endowment effect, is that it impacts us on a subconscious level. It's harder to recognize than something like multitasking, which happens on a physical level, or decoy pricing, which occurs when we're actively looking at multiple price points on a menu, for example. The endowment effect is emotional, it's nostalgia, it's attachment, it's often our gut reaction or feeling to things that are happening around us. For organizational leaders, this often manifests itself in the ideas that we hold or the decisions we've made. For example, it's easy that as we get further along in our careers, we continue to lean on the skills and the tools and the knowledge and the experiences that have gotten us to that point, resulting in us doing the same thing over and over again, answering questions in the same way, approaching problems and opportunities in the same way. But the world moves on, and it moves on really fast. Digging your heels in and resisting the opportunities to tailor your approach to the world we actually live in is a form of the endowment effect. It's status quo bias. But guess what? The world doesn't care about you and I and how we'd like things to be. These changes, technology, tools, new ideas, innovation, AI, they're going to run right over you if you're sitting around clutching your pearls about the way the world was 10 years ago, the way things used to be and the way you want them to be. The world needs new approaches. 
It needs fresh eyes. It needs you to solve tomorrow's problems without yesterday's map. And every day that passes, yesterday's solutions become less and less valuable, while unsolved problems or problems solved in new ways continue to increase in value. It's on you. It's on you to pay attention and recognize when you find yourself in a situation where you're refusing to change your current state or your current workflow when you're presented with undeniably better alternatives. If you're still reporting campaign performance in a Word doc or manually updated spreadsheets, you're resisting adopting automated reporting tools, which will be more accurate and save you time. If you're manually crafting every social media post, email newsletter, piece of website copy, or blog article, when things like ChatGPT exist, you're resisting an unstoppable force and it's costing you time. If you're not collecting, consolidating, segmenting, and repurposing customer data in a time where these things have never been as easy or as impactful as they are today, you're falling behind your competitors who have a true data management strategy. If you're insistent on only hiring local talent and forcing them to come into your office every morning under the guise of productivity, when you could be hiring the best available talent nationally or globally, you're limiting the depth of the talent that you could be offering your customers and you're limiting the quality of the work they could be receiving. The only reason you're still doing these things and things just like that is the endowment effect. It's status quo bias. You've built your business or your career to this point based on things you're comfortable doing, and these are all examples of things that make you uncomfortable. And rather than stepping out of your comfort zone, potentially future-proofing your position and your business, you're pretending like these things don't exist, or worse yet, you're telling yourself that they don't work. But every single day, and at a rate that is accelerating so fast that we probably can't even fathom it, we're each going to be faced with decisions where we can choose to stick with what we know what we've done hundreds of times in the past, and get a result pretty close to what we have before. Or we can choose risk. We can choose nonconformity. We can take on a beginner's mindset and break free from the comfort of routine and step into the stage of evolution, of personal evolution, of career evolution, and embrace change, adopt new tools, test new approaches. When you find yourself at the crossroads of familiarity and audacity, it's important to remember that every major milestone in your personal and professional life has come from choosing to step into the unexplored horizons of possibility and embracing the fear and risk that comes along with that. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and that was another episode of Unconsidered. If you made it this far, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. If you're interested, there's links to all of the research and a full episode transcript at my website, dallasmclaughlin.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice and consider sharing it with a friend of yours. Until next time, keep working hard and have fun.